Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Okay, before we get going today, I want to give a massive shout out to you guys who have helped take my brand new book, Expat Secrets, to a number one bestseller on Amazon. I am beyond thrilled and feel very fortunate that people have enjoyed the book so much. I put a lot of work into it and I would like to give a special thank you to everyone who left reviews of the book on Amazon. So to Tom Augenthaler, Clint Townsend, Gregory Deal, Philip Stankowski, Derek Kay, Tim Coyle, R. Giant and Zach, and to Anthony at Amazon.ca store, and Daniel at the Amazon.uk store. To all of you, I would like to give a massive thank you for your five-star reviews. It really means a lot to me. Positive reviews really help a new author like me to get my work seen by more people. I read every single review and really appreciate you taking the two minutes out of your day to post to Amazon about your experience with my book. If you have not had a chance to pick up a copy of my brand new book, Expat Secrets, then no worries. You can pick up your copy today on Kindle or Amazon. Just search Expat Secrets or Expat Secrets and my first name, Mikkel, M-I-K-K-E-L, and it should pop right up. Enjoy the book, and once again, thank you so much to everyone who took the time out of their day to write a review. You guys are awesome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is a Norwegian media professional, traveler, and author who has circumnavigated the globe, visiting every country in the world, not once, but twice. The first time was on May 8th, 2013, after entering the 198th and last country, Cape Verde. He was 37 years old and 344 days old, which made him the youngest person to visit all countries in the world while working a full-time job or as a hobby traveler. Recently, he has just become the first person to have visited every country in the world twice. While accomplishing this amazing feat, he has set several Guinness World Records. Please welcome to the show, Gunnar Garfors. Gunnar, how are you doing? I'm doing very well here in Oslo. Thanks a lot for having me. My pleasure. It is really cool. Really exciting to have you on the show. I have so many questions for you. I love traveling. I've dedicated my entire life to traveling. It has been my long, long, long time goal to visit every single country on the earth. I never actually expected anyone to do it. You know, you were 37 years old the first time you did it. Now you've done it the second time. Like, 
that just pushes the boundaries of what I even thought was possible. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. Well, it's great to be here. Be here. Thanks a lot. And uh, well, it takes, um, I don't know, as you, I love traveling. And it's sort of a disease that I'm happy to have. You know, I'm sort of addicted to this. And uh, I don't want that addiction to um, to leave me. <laughs> so have you seen that it might leave you at some point? Are you going to get bored of this? Or is this is this with you for the for your entire life? Uh, not a chance. This is definitely uh, with me for uh, the rest of my life. I mean, uh, not to travel would be an insult to my mind, to my intellect, to my curiosity. Um, and there is nothing that actually boosts my curiosity uh, as travel, you know, to see other people, cultures, taste different kinds of food and just explore um, different parts of, of this wonderful world we're, we're actually living on. Well, I'll definitely second that. So why don't you take a couple of minutes, Garfor, and then kind of talk us through your backstory. How did you get into traveling and, and traveling so extensively? Because um, this is not just a, a weekend away in the Med or something like that. You've been to some pretty incredible, like, extreme places. Yeah, for sure. This all um, started, I think, when I was four years old. <laughs> uh, I, have now, I now have three brothers and three sisters. Back then, I only had a brother called Einstein. And uh, we lived in a small village on the west coast of Norway uh, with uh, our mother. Uh, our father, he was a medical doctor at the time. He's retired now. And he was working on a cruise ship in the Pacific. Um, and, uh, you know, so he traveled to the Philippines, Japan, China, um, North America, Canada, you know, Alaska, United States, and the mainland. And uh, we couldn't read, being four and my brother too. So what he did, he recorded these incredible tales on audio cassette tapes and sent them to us via the, you know, via the mail. And I remember us running to our mailbox, which is around 100 meters from our house. My mom still lives there um, every day to see if there was another um, letter, one of these um, via airmail blue and white letters. And maybe twice a month there was a letter, like a thick letter with an audio tape inside. Uh, we ran back into the kitchen, put it into the cassette player and pressed play, and our dad's voice was there. And that made such an impression on a little child like myself and my brother. Um, and I remember um, telling myself, promising myself that when I grew up, uh, to be as big and old as my dad, I would also travel all over the world. So, you know, I think that's where it all started. And obviously, I didn't start traveling on my own until many, many years later. But, uh, you know, that, that really did something to me. I didn't quite understand how my dad was on the other side of the world, as our mother told us. You know, she said, well, the, the world is round, which a four-year-old could not really uh, comprehend. But, uh, <laughs> um, no, I still remember, uh, you know, some of those stories that uh, our, our dad told us. It, it, was, um, it, it was out of the ordinary. And then I guess I, I continue. I, I started traveling uh, the first time I traveled on my own without my family. I was 17 years old when I traveled around Europe. And that only fueled to uh, my suspicion that traveling would indeed be uh, an incredible thing. <laughs> so you had such a, a romantic beginning to traveling, especially like having such an influence at such a young age, at four years old. Like when I think about my beginning traveling, I didn't do anything until I was in my mid uh, teenage years. My parents didn't really do much traveling. You know, my father had done things when he was quite young and my mom had done when they were young, but we didn't really do much as a family and we didn't really talk too much about it. 
you know, maybe a little bit, but not uh, certainly not getting care packages in the mail with like recording stories from around the world. Like that's so neat, you know. It was uh, it was uh, incredible. But of course, as I told you, uh, we um, gradually grew as a family and three brothers and three sisters. Um, me and my parents, a few cats and uh, rabbits and birds and everything, uh, you know, to, to travel all this. And this was in this was in the 70s and 80s. It was before um, uh, low cost airlines. So there was no way my my parents could take us all um, on, on trips far away. So they bought a, a caravan and we had a small minibus. So we towed the caravan more or less everywhere in Scandinavia and also the UK. So it's also, we got to see a lot of that when we grew up. But as I said, it wasn't until I was 17, I really started, you know, flying on my own. Um, I then went to the United States for a year as an exchange student to Indiana. Um, and again, that was my first time in the, in the US, uh, North America. And um, well, I love that experience as well. So, you know, every time I, I made another step, I, I saw another country I went to a different city or a town or a village or an island. Uh, that, that really did something. And I, I just wanted to see more. At the same time, I read a lot of books. You know, I watched television shows and um, uh, about far-flung places. Um, and, and this inspired, for sure. At the same time, I, I wanted to see for myself. You know, so uh, <laughs> there was a lot of different influences uh, coming from, from all over the place when I, when I grew up. See, and that's so different than me because when I go to a country, I pretty much never research. I don't do any reading about it. I just kind of show up, see what it's like, and then make my own way. I'm a voracious reader and I love to read, but I always read like finance and economics and things like that. But I've never read like the, the traveler's books and things like that. So it's interesting that it's not just your hobby to do, but it's also your hobby to study about in your free time. Well, I like to read about uh, both places and, and people from, from all over the world. Uh, mind you, I never use guidebooks. I, I, I hate guidebooks because they, uh, they make traveling like a visit to the zoo or something. Everybody walks the same path. They see the same exact things. And you have some you know, guidebooks that are more famous than others. Um, and you don't have to be a brain surgeon as, as the owner of a restaurant or a bar to understand that, oh, I must be in Lonely Planet. You know, suddenly I got an increase of 80% of my visitors and they were all foreign. And then, you know, you, you probably say, oh, I might as well raise my prices 50% or 30 or 80%. And then we can say, well, this is a low cost country. It's a good thing. We, we help the local economy. At the same time, uh, the locals, they do not think the same way. So they will be scared away. And so if you follow all the uh, advice in a guidebook, you will end up hanging with only other Western tourists. And that's not really what traveling is about, in my opinion. Uh, and of course, this guidebook book was written some time ago, maybe a year, if you're lucky, possibly more three, four years, five years. It was written by a person you know nothing about. You might not share interest with him or her. And uh, he or she was probably there, you know, in the country or in the village or in the town you're visiting for, for a day or two or, or maximum a week. So, you know, I, if I find a guidebook, I never buy them. But if I come across one, I will read about the place I'm going to in order to find out where not to go. Mm -hmm. Well, and especially with the hotels and the restaurants and things like that, I can see the, the benefits for knowing, you know, 
the monuments or like a little bit about the history, things like that are pretty good. But definitely for the restaurants, just go out there and try things. Like I always look for the ones that have a lot of the locals in there. If I see it's all just Europeans, I'm like, well, I don't want to go there. You know, everything's going to be westernized, the flavors, especially when you start traveling through Asia and then they, they start dumbing down the flavors or they make it more sweet and less spicy. I don't want anything to do with that. I want, I want the real deal. I want to know how someone's mother made it or grandmother made it. I want the, the real, real, real cuisine. No, exactly. I, I totally agree with you there. And uh, but at the same time, uh, many people would never travel without a guidebook because it gives that sense of security to many people. And you have information about bus times, perhaps, and and, and flights and all the rest of it. Um, so I'm not saying guidebooks are a bad thing at all. Uh, I just, you know, as, uh, after having traveled quite a bit myself, I uh, I prefer not to use them. Well, and see, and I would rather have someone go out there and travel with a guidebook than not travel at all. Like if it gives them that security so that they feel like they can do this, then this is a fantastic tool to use it as such. But I would agree with you, don't use it as a crutch and follow it like a religious dogma that you, you know, because such and such guide says you, this is the nicest restaurant, then you must eat there or you must see this. Go out, explore, see things for yourself, make your own decision, make your own opinion about the the things that are around you. Hmm. No, uh, definitely. And again, that, that leads us to a similar topic, I'd say, uh, and that's over planning. <laughs> a lot of people, they over plan their holidays um, to, well, they haven't even been to the country or the destination and they have probably over, they've planned everything. So they might have five or six or seven activities uh, planned for every day they're there and then they arrive and say oh it's not the way i thought or oh wow i met this amazing person and he or she is telling me what to do and it does not uh, align with what i have already planned and possibly paid for so you know leave as much as you can i totally agree with your way of traveling and um, have a look on your own you know find out what the place is like you know dive into the atmosphere and, and ask the locals what should i do here they know much much better than um, a random guidebook writer for sure i mean just think about yourself you know if somebody comes to your 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 home your hometown you know you will know much better what to do there than any uh writer that, that has been there for a week or three days yeah absolutely there's lots of like little insider secrets you know different places that you can go and you know it's not only going to save you money but it's often going to give you a much better uh, experience and a lot more genuine i would say so I want to dive into a little bit about your new book that is coming out, because from what I understand, you're going to be talking about the countries that don't get a lot of publicity, or even if they do get a bit of publicity, it's it's certainly not of uh, destinations that people would travel to. So talk to me a little bit about your new book and when it's coming out, and, uh, and then I'm, I want to dig into some of these countries themselves. Yeah, certainly. The book is uh, is called Nowhere, um, and it's about the 20 least visited countries in the world, the countries that that receive the least amount of tourists. It's coming out in April in, in Norway. The English version is coming a little bit later in the year. That's not still, uh, that's not in place uh, yet. Uh, so I've been, uh, so that's sort of what triggered my visit to every country for the second time, my research to these uh, least visited countries and I realized that in order to be, to be able to to compare these countries with all the others um, I should visit them all uh, two times 
And I also um, discovered or, or came to the conclusion that there, there are no country in the world that deserves to be visited only once. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> so, okay. There's so many ways I want to talk about, like so many things I want to dig in here, like on the countries. Now, did you, did you make like a criteria when, when writing this list or was it like very objective? Okay, this is it. These countries had the least amount of people, therefore they are the top 20. Or were there any other deciding factors that made the list? Uh, no, that that was it, and um, of course you can't you can't find these numbers um, easily. Uh, United Nations World Tourism Organization (UNWTO) they have a list of tourist numbers for most countries in the world, uh, but of course no one is employed to look after tourist numbers in countries less visited. So the least visited countries are you know they're they're the name the name of the country. Uh, the names of the countries are on the list, but there are no figures there. So I had to go uh, and research all these countries and to, you know, I had to visit uh, ministers, I had to visit uh, hotel owners, uh, airports, um, custom officials. And so I had to do this research on my own. Uh, and some countries were originally in the book, but it turned out uh, they were passed, you know, or, um, by other countries that turned out to have uh, fewer visitors. So yes, it, it's um, uh, an objective list, as, or as far as objective as objective as it can be. Of course, first of all, how do you define a tourist? If you go to Europe, uh, you have the Schengen area. You don't need a passport to cross the borders. So how can you actually count the number of tourists and so on? Uh, you know, you can never get a precise number for any any countries. Uh, for any country, some some island nations they um, they only count people arriving by boat. Others only count people uh, arriving by aircraft, and and so on and so forth. So you know there is no definition what is really a tourist. So you know the numbers are as objective as I could uh, I could get. <laughs> That's fair enough, but I, I I don't think anyone is going to hold you you know to a gun and be like oh this one had a little bit more a little bit less because this is. Um... I would imagine quite a like travel adventure story. This is not uh, you know world back world book of figures type of uh, information. I imagine there's going to be a lot of stories and examples and uh, personal experiences in it. Uh, there are for sure. And um, uh, the twenty countries. First of all, that's ten uh, percent of all the countries out there, or 198 countries. So I did the twenty uh, least visited. There are also the the twenty countries that receive uh, fewer than fifty thousand uh, tourists a year. Uh, so number twenty one receives, I think, fifty four thousand tourists. Um, and um, twenty, it's it's, it's a nice and, and round number. I started off with uh, I was going to do twelve, and then this number, the number of countries, just sort of grew. Um, you you can also divide these countries, these twenty countries, in two uh, two parts. Um, one part is for countries that are, well, more or less dangerous. There might be war or at least conflict there. Uh, terrorism might, might prevail. Um, so you've probably heard about these countries, but in the wrong way. You've heard about them on the news, about uh, killings, war, and so on. And the other group of, of countries are uh, typically island nations that are really, really bad at marketing themselves, that have um, bad information 
infrastructure and have very few flights to them. So, you know, they, there's not really room for many tourists to, to, to even come there on, on the few planes that fly there. And again, yeah, bad marketing. Is that like Tuvalu and places like that, I would guess? Yeah, absolutely. Tuvalu is, is the fourth least visited country in the world. Oh, I just I just guessed on that one. But uh, yeah, well, actually, you know, going back to my earlier point of books that I read, when I lived in New Zealand, I actually found a book on Tuvalu when I was at the library. And I was like, this is so weird. Like, I've never even heard of this place. And it's so interesting because the the country's domain name, like, so I'm Canadian, ours is .ca, theirs is .tv. So there was like a lot of people who want to buy domain names from that country, you know, because it would be, you know, survivor.tv or whatever, you know, might be uh, your website uh, domain name. So I thought that was pretty neat. And I read some things about that. And it's been on my list of countries to visit for 15 years now, I suppose. Wow. Yeah, you should definitely go. It's it's very special. Only 10, between 10 and 11,000 people living there. Uh, on on various islands, um, the combined size of the country is sort of is it one fourth of Manhattan or something? It, it's tiny, and um, well, it's funny that you mentioned .tv because that actually makes up quite a bit of their of the country's income to to sell their domain names. <laughs> I believe it. That's the best domain, you know, uh, not handle. I don't even know what the technical term for the the dot part is, but um, yeah, you, you're hard pressed to find a better one than that. No, definitely. No, no, for sure. And and they luckily, they do take advantage of it. There is not that much uh, to make money from. There are also some fishing, um, but most of that is outsourced to, to foreign companies, unfortunately. Sadly, Tuvalu is uh, one of the first countries that will, uh, well, let's put it bluntly, disappear or sink, as they put it there, uh, because of, uh, of rising uh, ocean levels. Yeah, because so, it's a uh, set of atolls, so they're only a couple of meters above sea level, I think. Yeah, the, the, the highest point is, is two, I think, two and a half uh, meters above sea level, and that's really something we should think about. You know, the, the they will actually disappear unless we um, we come to our senses and, and um, do what we can to uh, to slow uh, or stop uh, climate change that most uh, experts are agreeing is, is indeed uh, man-made. Well, I had uh, James Ellsmore on the podcast once before, or earlier last year, and we had an entire episode about small small island nations and renewable energy and the, the problems that these kind of countries are facing. It was really fascinating. So if any of my listeners haven't had a chance, I'd definitely recommend going to expatmoneyshow.com and searching out James's uh, episode because learning about this it, it really is fascinating and it's something that we need to highlight like it's something that we need to consider yeah no i i would um, i'm gonna have to look at uh, listen to that uh, myself i'm quite interested in, in hearing about um, the stories he's, he's sharing with you there and unfortunately there are many other countries uh, like that in in the pacific which are uh, well struggling against the same thing uh, you have Kiribati, another island nation, and they're uh, they have actually acquired some land on on Fiji, uh, and it's not in order to move the population, although that might uh, have to be a last resort. But for now, on, but for now, it is to to grow um, vegetables on on Fiji for for consumption in, in Kiribati. 
Wow, that's incredible. I know when I lived in New Zealand, we would often talk about the islander population and how there was more Fijians in New Zealand than there are in Fiji. Same with Tongans and people from Samoa and all of these types of small island nations. They actually have a larger population outside of their country than they have in, inside of their country. Yeah, no, and that's, uh, you, you can, you can, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is the lack of um, employment opportunities. Uh, most of these countries are rather poor. And what we have seen, you know, on, on you know, uh, films, cartoons, etc., you, you see these um, people having wonderful drinks on a tiny beach or a tiny island, uh, umbrella drinks, and everything is nice and it's luxury and all the rest of it. You, you're, uh, it's quite hard to find luxury hotels on, in these countries, um, and the poverty is is, uh, is quite high. Unfortunately, it's the same with um, the child mortality rate. There so actually, in, in Kiribati, which I mentioned earlier, uh, the biggest um, birthday party of your life is your first birthday party, because if you manage to um, stay alive until you're one likelihood is so much greater that you'll actually make it to to an adult. So you will never remember your biggest uh, birthday party in, in Kiribati. That's mad. I never would have thought about that, but jeez. Uh, okay, so for today's interview, Gunnar, I want to, I don't want to go through the entire list of 20 countries. I don't want to make this in sequential order. You know, let's just jump around a little bit. So we're talking a little bit about the South Pacific. You know, maybe I'll mention some of the countries. See, and this is really fun for me because, you know, like I said earlier, I want to go to every country in the world, but I've never met anyone who's actually been to uh, to Tuvalu. You know, I want to maybe throw out some other countries' names and let's see if they make the list or not. And if they did, maybe you can share a little bit of your experience there. How does that sound to you? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> All right. So, okay. I'm thinking of countries that I wanted to visit while I was in the South Pacific. I lived down there for four years see, and I keep wanting to go. Have you ever been to, but I know you have, have you ever been to the Marshall Islands? Absolutely. Yes. And they are actually on, on the list as well. Um, they are uh, having, um, what should I say? Um, an um, agreement with the United States. So people in Marshall Islands, they're actually, um, allowed to work in the U.S. if they want to. So, as again, as you're saying, most of the population is actually living outside uh, the country itself. Um, and the Marshall Islands, again, it consists of loads of atolls. It's quite a small country. They sure um, they also benefit from the U.S. through this department uh, through this agreement uh, when it comes to postal services, military services, uh, meteorological services, and so on. It's the fishiest nation in the world, actually, and more fish species than any other country. So definitely bring your um, uh, scuba gear. Well, that's why I know this, you know, because I'm, I haven't scuba dived in a while, but, you know, I'm a master scuba diver and a national lifeguard, and I love um, these types of things. So a lot of the countries that um, I've researched over the years is because they have such fantastic scuba diving. Did you make it scuba diving in the South Pacific much? Have you ever, do you scuba dive? I, I scuba dive in the Pacific. I've only done snorkeling, unfortunately. Uh, and one of the reasons is that uh, there are not many places renting out scuba gear. And th those few that, that are, usually they're out diving. So, you know, unless you've prepared, in, you know, quite a long time in advance, you won't even get hold of them. So I, I went in the Marshall Islands. I went to the only dive shop I can find. 
I think three or four times trying to set up an appointment, but uh, they were never there. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's terrible. Okay, what else in the South Pacific do I really want to know about? How about the Solomon Islands? Uh, I, I was just on a radio show, on the, well, the biggest uh, breakfast radio show in Norway uh, earlier this morning, and they asked me about the most exotic, uh, exotic, uh, sorry, the most exotic country in the world. And of course, this depends on where you're from, your background. A lot of people would probably say Norway is the most exotic country in the world. But I, um, I, I named Solomon Islands as the most um, exotic, uh, exotic country. It's uh, so far away from us. It's um, also on the list uh, of the least. It is it. Oh, I'm doing good here. I'm doing very well. <laughs> well, you are. You, 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 I'd almost think you have, you've actually read my list already. I haven't. I swear. See, my listeners would think this is going to be set up, but I swear. Gunnar and I have just met today, and uh, this is all completely uh, impromptu. Uh, but you can actually, um, you and your listeners, you can actually read the list. I've made a short version of it already, and it's out on my website, garforce.com. Uh, and I'm telling um, a few stories about each country there, and I'm also mentioning the amount of tourists that visit um, um, these countries. And, and Solomon Islands is actually number 16. They receive 26,000 tourists a year, and you can fly directly from Brisbane. So it's uh, it's not the hardest country in the Pacific to, to get to. So um, very diverse, extremely green, and incredible for surfing. The problem is that in infrastructure is really, really bad, the roads are, are awful, so you will probably have to find um, someone with a boat that will take you to the southern part of uh, Guadalcanal, the main island, if you want to go um, to, to some of the best surf spots. <laughs> Very nice. So, okay, so we've just touched on three to four countries here in the South Pacific. Give me some, some stories, some examples, or like personal personal experience from visiting these types of places how did you feel what did you think what was the what were the people like i don't want just facts and figures you know but let, let's hear some personal side of it okay super duper quick break here if you do not have your copy of my brand new book expat secrets then go to amazon and search for it right now the book is all about internationalizing your life to diversify your assets protect your wealth and reduce your tax bill we cover topics like how offshore bank accounts and offshore companies work, how overseas real estate can lead to residency in a foreign country, and what you need to do to get a second passport. The book is packed with intel. Seriously, no fluff or esoterics here. Just the real meat and potatoes of the international markets. How one thing leads to another, what to watch out for, and any recommendations on where you can go to follow up on all of this. So pick up your copy of Expat Secrets today on Amazon. Well, I've met so many people, and well, I can continue with um, with the Solomon Islands. I was I rented a car there, and I drove on on these awful roads, uh, averaging probably 15, 20 miles an hour uh, because of all the potholes and all the rest of it. Um, and I I met this uh, wonderful lady, around 50, 55 years old. Um, her name was uh, her name is um, uh, Ethel. And she's running a and b or she's renting out a few bungalows. And it turned out that, you know, she um, had been married. She got five children. And then um, she, uh, she was riding a bus. And the bus, well, tipped over uh, in a curb. So she crushed her left hand. There was a strike. 
there was a medical strike. So all doctors were in strike that day. So she had no attention to it and she had to amputate it um, you know, 10 days later uh, when the doctors were, were back at work. Um, so eventually her um, husband divorced her um, a few years later with five children. He uh, found some a new woman and he got four children with the new lady. And then both the husband and the new wife, they died. And then Ethel, well, she's very good hearted. And so she said, okay, I will adopt the four kids. So suddenly she had nine kids to look after. Wonderful, wonderful woman. And, you know, she, she was renting out these really nice bungalows. And when she heard I was writing a book about them, you know, she instructed two of her sons to set up a writing desk for me, you know, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> so sweet. See, and this goes right back to our earlier point, you know, by taking your dollars and going to some of these countries, you can actually make a big difference in somebody's life. You know, by you staying at her bungalow and speaking about it and talking about your experience, you know, that's a way that you can you can really make a difference in an, in an individual's life and the nine children. My goodness, I have one child. How do you have nine children? God, <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah, I don't have any children. So if I had, I, I probably would have had to slow down a little bit on, on traveling. And a lot of people ask me about this. You know, can I? Uh, where should I go with my kid? And you know, well, they have children in every country in the world, so you can probably uh, you can probably take them anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's leave the South Pacific. Let's jump, I don't know, you want to go to Asia? Let's try to figure out some of the Asian countries that might be on the list. Uh, East Timor has got to be, is East Timor Asia or is that more, I guess East Timor is uh, South Pacific still, isn't it? Well, anyway, it's considered Asia. It's surrounded by Indonesia, which is uh, certainly in Asia, uh, but it's it's not on the list. Not in the list. Okay, okay, let's keep going. It's not far from it, though, I must say. Well, I'm just trying to think because it's quite a new nation compared to a lot of others. And then when you look at the map, it's it's so interesting because it's it looks like one country, but it's split so directly down the center. Um, and East Timor being on one side and uh, and what is it, Indonesia on the other side. Yeah, no, it's uh, and it's it's actually the what is it the third newest country in the world, East Timor. Yeah, next to South Sudan and what's the other one? Uh, Kosovo is the second um, second newest, yeah. But you're right, South Sudan, I'm impressed. So not many people know that. <laughs> well, mate, you're on a traveler's uh, podcast, so if I don't know my, my countries, um, then shame on me. Okay, <laughs> uh, let's keep going. Uh, is North Korea on the list? No, oddly not. Um, the reason for that is, well, if you only counted um, Western tourists, which a lot of people tend to do, it would be on the list, but they receive around 100,000 uh, Chinese tourists every year. So it's um, it's uh, it's number 35 or so, uh, I think. So it's, it didn't make the list, um, for um, which is surprising uh, to most people. I've been to North Korea, and I did see like incredible amounts of Chinese businessmen tourists coming over and drinking and behaving badly and you know which was not what i expected when i when i first came there but uh, i still thought it would be on the list to be fair yeah no absolutely and they have um, well they see this as a way of getting uh, foreign currency into their country um, and there are quite a lot of chinese that actually go there on shopping tours they take the train in uh, from china as some of them only stay a day or two but you know they go 
you're buying all sorts of stuff, ginseng or you know souvenirs or whatever else, and they they um, well give the country some much needed um, foreign currency, U.S. dollars uh, usually. Um, so, uh, but they're really looking into it now with new leadership. Uh, they've set up um, skiing resorts. They have some uh, uh, beach resorts and all the rest of it. So they're, they're trying to to attract more people. Uh, but of course, then they have the nuclear bombs and all the, that threat, which is not really helping. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's so interesting to visit that country because, and, and I don't know your experience, but for me, it was like stepping in a time machine and going back to say 1960s. Now, I wasn't born till 1983, but I've seen a lot of TV and a lot of movies, and I swear to God, that's what it looks like. You know, all the hairstyles, the clothes, the buildings, everything is like 1960s, and nothing got updated. Nothing's been changed since then. So it, it, it's it's crazy. I can't think of any other country in the world that has this this type of uh, environment that you can see. No, and I, um, it, well, I visited twice. The last time was uh, last year. The first time was in 2010, so eight years apart. And uh, there were some more cars on the road, uh, some new apartment buildings. Uh, and other than that, I, I could really not see much, uh, much of a difference. The second time I took the train in from China and um, North Korea, as you know, of course, but your, re your listeners might not, uh, that you need two guides with you at all times because they're looking after you, that you're only seeing what you're supposed to see, but they're equally looking after each other. Um, otherwise, you know, they could start interviewing me or talking to me and finding out what the real world outside North Korea is really like. Uh, even the North Korean guides will, however, have to go to the bathroom every once in a while, and then the person who's not in the bathroom will eventually start asking you, what is it really like outside, which is quite uh, interesting. But... If you take the train in, you will not. You don't have the guides with you. They will meet you in Pyongyang, in the capital, and there you can see. You get to see a little bit more. Of course, the train lines they they go through some very poor areas, uh, although not the worst ones. And I could hardly see a car, vehicle, truck, anything motorized on the countryside. But there are so many bicycles there, so many um, big oxes and horses pulling carriages, old wooden carriages. And people are uh, malnourished, so much smaller than in um, in Pyongyang. Uh, so there, there are vast differences there. So I definitely recommend to take the train in or out if you can, in order in order in order to see um, see more of the country. So we flew in from Beijing. We took the train out. It was twenty two hours. I warn people if you are uh, and and you've been there more recently than I have. But when I came out there were cockroaches that came out at night, thousands of them, thousands of them. It's like the whole car needed to be fumigated. Now, when you get into China, if you switch cars and things like that, it's completely different. The Chinese uh, sleeper cars are super clean and the dining carts and everything are really nice, but they, they detach the, the North Korean little uh, train and attach it to the Chinese one and you continue on to Beijing. And it was... Yeah, we we sat on our luggage in the hallway for and stayed awake for the entire twenty two hours. It was it was challenging to get to sleep, but it was an experience. Well, for sure, I I, um, I presume I was lucky and I got to ride on on a newer uh, North Korean train. I I didn't see any cockroaches, but uh, perhaps they've changed material, uh, or um, I was just lucky to get one of the new ones. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Okay, so let's think. Uh, any other countries in Asia that would make the list? 
I don't think so. I'm going to guess no. Well, you know, there are actually uh, there are actually two other countries in Asia. So, all right, D- spoil the surprise. I'm I'm not going to try to guess. Go for it. Well, Afghanistan is number thirteen with uh, thirteen thousand visitors. Okay, of course. I'm I'm see and here I'm I'm thinking about Asia and I'm thinking about East Asia, but that's shame on me. Of course, Afghanistan. Afghanistan. I last visited there again last year, uh, doing research. And this time I visited Kabul, um, the, the capital. It's a huge city, five million people living there. And I stayed with a local journalist who, who was absolutely phenomenal. He took me everywhere and he knew every everybody. And he invited you know loads of friends every night to his house. And we were uh, having tea and uh, delicious meals. Not much alcohol to get in Afghanistan. Uh, except in the UN base, actually, where I also visited uh, a person who, who's working there, and uh, they they probably have the only bar in Afghanistan in the UN uh, UN base, actually. So, how is it difficult to get into Afghanistan? How does that? How do you even do that? I like, like most of the countries that I've been to have never been war zones. Like at the time, like how how does that work? Well, it's it's not difficult. You can get a visa in in, in the same day or in in, in twenty four hours if you um, if you pay normal rates. If you pay double, you get it in, in two hours. Uh, it's easy to get in in Dubai, for instance, or in Oslo, where I live in, in Norway. Um, then getting into Kabul is not really advised unless you know someone on the inside that can you know show you around. Um, however, if you go to Bamiyan. It, which is the name of a province that used to be on the Silk Route, uh, going from Medi- the Mediterranean uh, to China, is really interesting. That's sort of the tourist spot of Afghanistan. There's got to be like a quotation mark or something around that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, they actually, and, and this is true, they actually get between 200,000 and 300,000 tourists um, a year. These are local tourists, though. Um, but it's totally safe. And they even have an own tourist board in this province. That's the only province in Afghanistan. It's one out of 34 uh, provinces, I believe. And you um, can go skiing there. You have incredible um, uh, lakes, um, mountains. You have very old statues, uh, Buddhistic statues and all the rest of it. This is uh, totally safe to go. Uh, the way to get there um, is you fly into Kabul and you transit in the airport, which is probably is one of the two best protected airports in the world. Uh, the one in Mogadishu might be uh, better protected in Somalia. Um, so you're fine in the airport, no um, uh, no problem at all. And then you just transit and take a domestic flight and go to, to Bamiya. So that's, if you if you want to stay safe, for sure, then then that's where you should visit in Afghanistan. Getting the visa, as I said, is, is not a big problem. And so what airlines in, I don't know if you can remember, was it like Emirates who flies there or who, who would fly into Afghanistan? Well, there are quite a few flying to um, to Kabul. Uh, Emirates fly Dubai, uh, Turkish airlines fly there. You have some, um, I believe, Iranian ones, uh, some from, uh, I think, in maybe even Thai Airways, I'm not quite sure. But no, a number of airlines fly there. So check that out on um, on the Wikipedia um, site. Just search for Kabul Airport on Wikipedia, and uh, there you will. All the airlines are listed. So that's that's a good way to find out how to travel by air to to anywhere really. Just find the airport on Wikipedia, and they're they're all listed. See, for countries like that, my I guess 
plan, for lack of a better word, when I visited, I just kind of assumed I would do it in 10 years or 20 years when things have kind of calmed down. So it's really interesting to hear someone who's going there in today's day and age uh, as a tourist, as a traveler, to go and see with their own eyes uh, what the place is like. Yes, and I definitely, I, I certainly recommend to go there. I mean, Af Afghanistan was, uh, you could see more women wearing miniskirts in Afghanistan in the 70s and 80s than you could in, in New York and London. It was very advanced when it came to, to female rights, and that unfortunately has, has totally turned around. Well, it was the similar thing with Iran as well. Iran back in those days was very free. Oh, that's, that's very true. So you have this, this region there. They were very advanced in, in, in this matter. And unfortunately, you have the revolution in Iran, and we know what it's like now. Iran is a marvelous place, and the, some of the most um, hospitable people in the world. It's just a shame about their leadership, uh, which is, is sort, of, sort of holding them hostage. Well, if I, if I rank for my own life of most interesting countries that I've ever been to, Iran is, is right up there, one, number one, number two, number three. Like, it's... It's unbelievable there. The natural beauty, the hospitality of the people, the respect that I saw for other human beings. Like when you walked through the market, if there if there was a woman who walked by, there was no cat calls or or rudeness. People like stepped back. They were very calm. Everyone was very gentle. Like it was so so different than what the mainstream media uh, portrays it as. No, for, for sure. And um, this, uh, this story, the stories you're telling now, um, are being relayed by probably every foreigner who's ever visited Iran. You know, a lot of them are very frightened before they go. You know, some of them will never go, or a lot of people will never go. But everyone who goes in there, 99.9% of them are saying, wow, this is, this is the friendliest country I've ever been to. And people take you to, they'll invite you to their homes, they'll, you know, they'll make you dinner. They might not have much, but, you know, they, they will share whatever they have. And uh, so many smiles and incredible uh, people in, in Iran. Uh, you know, you will never believe it. And then you see the, the mainstream media, you see a lot of politicians, they're, um, they're talking so badly about Iran. And, of course, if you talk about only the politicians, they are, you know, they might be onto something. Uh, unfortunately, after the revolution, the, the country has deteriorated uh, badly in terms of uh, free speech and, and, and democracy and all the rest. But the people are still uh, truly uh, amazing, for sure. Well, I was, and, and my readers from my blog know, and, or possibly my, my email newsletter, I had a conversation with a senator from the United States, oh, I want to say about a month or two ago, and we were chit-chatting, chatting about the world, chatting about travel. We were talking for about 20 minutes, half an hour. And then I saw um, a pile of papers he had with him with his briefcase. And it said, economic war against Iran. And he was coming over to the Middle East here and meeting with, uh, with and I, I don't know how much of this I should actually be relating, but um, yeah, was meeting with people here in the Middle East to discuss against Iran. And I told him, I said, you know, have you been to Iran? He said, oh, no, I would never go there. And I'm like, you know, I've been there. I, I went there by myself. I spent two weeks there and had a guide who spoke English and Farsi and drove me around. It was like the most beautiful country in the world. The people were amazing, blah, 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 blah. Told him a little bit about my experience. And then suddenly that was the end of the conversation. It was like he pulled out his phone. He's like, oh, okay, nice. And then I said bye. And then I never saw him again. I was like, 
you know, we we got along for 20 minutes, half an hour, and politician, he didn't want to hear any of my personal experience from it. No, that's quite sad. If you look at the numbers, and, and mind you, uh, also on my website, garforce.com, I, I actually have a list, a complete list of um, visitors to every country in the world, all 198. So I just pulled up Iran here, which is a number... 148 so you know it's it's the 50th most visited country in the world or the 148th least visited they almost get 5 million tourists and very few of those are unfortunately from from north america well i knew for sure it would not be on the list of least visited but it is um if you talk about countries that have a bad reputation it's it's about as bad as it gets but it is a fantastic place so, okay, so you said there's two more in Asia. I'm going to guess that the other one being Iraq then, if we're talking war-torn countries. Is it Iraq? Is it Iraq or is it Syria? No, you're sort of in the area, but uh, no, you're, uh, you're wrong on that. It's actually, um, <laughs> I just visited Damascus, and that's, that's a brilliant party town. Uh, you would never believe it, but you have a, a street called Straight Street because it's totally... Um, straight. <laughs> you have 50, 40, 50 pubs, bars, and nightclubs on this street alone in Damascus. And um, it's not a problem to visit from Beirut. You have a two hour, two to three hour drive uh, from Beirut. And um, of course, you have a fair amount of fighting in, in parts of Syria. Um, and it might now come back again after, um, well, the United States is threatening to pull out. Israel is sort of partly going in and all the rest of it. But um, a few months ago, it was perfectly safe in, in Damascus. Uh, but it's just outside the list. Okay, so I did very well in the South Pacific. I'm doing very poorly here in Asia. What's the What's the next country? What's the next one in Asia? Uh, well, I will, and when I tell you, you will uh, say, of course. Uh, and, and I will give you a hint. It's actually the least visited country in the world is the last one from Asia. Uh, it is um, a country to war. Uh, and it's Yemen. Yeah, it's the only country starting with a Y in, in the world. Uh, they only receive uh, five visitors, five tourists a month, so which means 60 a year. Um, and there's a tragedy behind this. I mean, of course, you have the war, you have, uh, you have uh, hunger, you have poverty. It, it's really, really sad what we're seeing there now. And so many children are dying because of mal- malnourishment. So it, it's, it's really sad um, what we're seeing there. Yeah, they're my next door neighbor. I should have, uh, I should have got that. Yeah, I live in the UAE, so you know we hear quite a bit about Yemen and what's going on over there. And um, you know, the UAE. Once again, I don't know how much I should be saying, but the the UAE has troops that are often posted over there, and uh, yeah, that's a sad situation for sure. So, what was your experience like visiting Yemen then? Were there interesting things to see? What was the natural beauty like? What were the people like? How, were they receptive to you? Uh, yeah, very much so. And it's, it is a beautiful country. It's very diverse. It's got 2,000 kilometers of, of coastline. Uh, and it's always been a very central country uh, when it comes to trade between the east and, and the west, uh, sort of in the middle between you know Africa and, and Europe. Um, I visited, the last time I visited was um, uh, in April this year. I went to Arden, um, um, port city in the south. Um, and I used a fixture to go there. It's, uh, as Of course, as you can tell, it's not the safest place to, to visit. 
and I was received in the airport. There were no police officers guarding the custom uh, desks in uh, in Aden because, of course, there are no tourists coming in. So my fixer, he had to he had to chase down a policeman. It took him like forty five minutes to find a policeman who could actually uh, stab my passport and get me legally uh, into Aden. I went in there with a photographer of mine, and um, you know the plane in from Djibouti. It was. Uh, it was probably only 10% full and it was a little bit foolish perhaps but we only bought tickets going into Yemen and then we realized that every plane going out of Yemen is is it's, well, it's full it's totally full you know it's overbooked so you know we had troubles getting out again uh, after our visit that lasted uh, almost a week in Yemen but amazing people there I was invited to a mango farmer and I was just interested in, uh, you know, I didn't want to bother him, uh, but I want to see his mango farm and to see how they grow edible plants there. Most farmers, they actually grow um, cuts, which is a, a mild narcotics that most uh, guys there are uh, addicted to. Unfortunately, this demands a lot of water to grow this plant, uh, which means and, and they can make a lot of money on it, the farmers, which means that very few farmers actually grow uh, vegetables and fruit which people need to to live but he did this and um, in the end he invited me and my photographer into his house his wife made us this amazing dinner like four or five courses we were sitting on the floor eating there are no tables no chairs in in uh, Yemen households um, and but we never got to thank the the wife for for making this meal of course um, foreign men should not see um, see wives in, in, in Yemen. So, you know, it's totally different uh, culture in many ways. Very, very interesting. Okay, so that's Asia. I don't, I don't want to spoil the surprise for the entire book, but I definitely want to spend a few minutes talking about Africa because I'm guessing that there's got to be some countries in there. And I can't remember if it was before the episode started where me and you were chit-chatting or if it was at the beginning of this episode, but my listeners know I have a giant love affair with Africa. I am totally obsessed with it. Um, I've been many, many times, and I just, I, I just think it is the most beautiful place in the world. It, it sure is. It, it's an, uh, yeah, it's an incredible continent, and uh, yeah, fifty-five countries. It is also the continent with the most uh, countries in the world, and it's so diverse, as as you know, and uh, hopefully, uh, many of your listeners. Um, well, and if they don't know that, well, then you should definitely visit because Africa has everything. Um, and yeah, you are right. Uh, we've covered the first two continents that um, that uh, you know I write about in the book, because uh, all twenty countries are either in the Pacific and Oceania, in Asia, or in Africa. Well, we knew they wouldn't be in the Americas or anything like that. So okay, la- this is fun. I like guessing games. Is the Camaros are they in the list? They are indeed, yes, uh, the Comoros. Uh, <laughs> well done. <laughs> I swear, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not reading from a list here, guys. I'm, I, you can tell by my Asia guesses that I'm not, I'm not uh, cheating here. <laughs> no, Comoros is, uh, it's an island nation. It's uh, between the mainland of Africa, the east part of Africa, between uh, the mainland and um, and Madagascar, and uh, it's uh, not, it's lacking in infrastructure. The roads are again uh, really, really bad. Um, and very few people have cars. So when I rented a big four-wheel drive pickup truck, um, everybody, um, almost everybody I met along the road, they tried to hitchhike with me. And, you know, so at one time, one point in time, I had 
three people inside the car and four people on on the bed in the back. You know, so I was I, I picked up seven pick, uh, hitchhikers to, when I drove around the island. <laughs> But that's got to be quite an experience just to be able to chit chat with people in in an environment like that. That would be wild. Well, and this is, but but you have to. I mean, uh, if you, if you don't do it, it's uh, they will probably understand that you're you're a foreigner and that you don't know that this is something you should do. But so few few people have cars there. So if you, if people don't people with cars don't help each other, you know this this country is uh, is going to be in trouble with regards to to getting. Uh, groceries, I mean, or plants, uh, fruits, vegetables to the market or to get them back home or and so on and so forth. So um, I think um, one of the good things about traveling is that you, you learn to think about uh, other people in a different way and you might understand they have totally different uh, needs than, than back home where everybody has one or four cars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look at North America. We often have two minivans sitting in the driveway, both are brand new, both are completely leveraged to the hilt, and we can't afford either of them, and we live off of our credit card, and it's like, you know, and you would never think about picking up a, a hitchhiker. Like, I hitchhiked for 18 months through Central and South America um, when I was 19 or 20 or something like that and had the greatest time of my life, and I was so fortunate to be able to to be able to do that and that people would pick me up and you know, not be scared or frightened or, you know, I had amazing experiences doing that. Yeah, and it's a really good way of getting to know people. Unfortunately, in, in most of the Western world, this is considered dangerous and something you should never, uh, never do. Of course, again, this has been, uh, a lot of this is, is thanks to some horror films uh, or, you know, thrillers or whatever back in the day. Um, but really, it, again, now when we're looking at um, the sharing economy, you know, we should we should share you know whatever we have to a much larger extent. As you say, a lot of these cars are just standing there anyway. So when we use them, we might as well use them uh, to to a greater extent and fill more people put more people into them. It's also better for the environment as well. I agree with you there. All right, so let's see. Is it going to be in Africa? Is it okay? See, a lot of the African island nations are actually stunning, beautiful, like. Uh, huge tourist destinations. Like I got married in the Seychelles, so like I'm definitely not going to be putting in uh, a country like that in top twenty. Where like the South Pacific for the islands, it makes sense. Like those places are really remote. Um, so I'm trying to think, is it going to be places like uh, Togo or Sierra Leone or any of those other ones in Africa that are kind of the smaller, smaller countries? Well, Sierra Leone is actually number twenty one. Oh, so so close. <laughs> and and Togo is uh yeah, I'm not sure. That's a little bit higher up on the list. Higher up, okay. Uh, most people, I would guess, would never um never know where Togo is. I had uh, Doug Casey on the show, and we were chit chatting about him going to Togo in 2019 or in 2020 and i'm going to try to uh to join along for his trip he wants to go speak to the despots over there who are running the country and uh try to influence them in a in a libertarian anarchist type of mindset and and relax the government a bit so that could be quite an interesting trip for me oh absolutely actually when i'm speaking about uh, togo i was at the expo uh, a few years ago in shanghai i was helping setting up um an exhibition for um, for a Chinese British artist, 
And we ended up partying with uh, Togo, Togoin, what do you say? You know, or at least the princess from Togo <laughs> in, in Shanghai. That was, and that was quite, um, that was quite interesting. Was she beautiful? She was, uh, she was not too bad. Let's put it that way. I won't, I won't mention her name. African princess. Come on. I've got to ask. Like, it seems like a, a Disney film or something. Well, it does. Yeah. So I probably shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said no comment to your question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's see. Um, how about Congo people's Depe or democratic people's Republic of Congo or however that goes. Is that in the list? No, it's not actually, and and they they get a fair amount of visitors to the uh, eastern side of the country, uh, you, and where you have some volcanoes, spectacular volcanoes. You know, you have a huge lake there, and that also borders Burundi and and Rwanda. So uh, it's it is outside, and again, it's a huge country. There's so many people living there, so you have a fair amount. That's why I was like, I was so hesitant to put it on because it's such a massive country. But, you know, I went to Uganda and we were right in the corner between Rwanda, um, Congo and Uganda, so much so that I was actually picking up um, satellite, not satellite, but uh, telecommunication from my phone from the neighboring countries. That's how close we were right in the little corner there because I was hiking with mountain gorillas. But, um, yeah, that one I wasn't so sure about. Um, but that's, that would be amazing. But, but so that's a little uh, trip for, that's a little trick for you if you want to save a lot of money uh, watching mountain gorillas you should do that in in DRC in Congo it's it's much cheaper <laughs> oh i'm sure well when we went hiking with the mountain gorillas we were the only people in Uganda that day hiking with them and then the two neighboring countries like we said Rwanda and Congo you know they're not visited very often so i can't be for i can't be sure, but I would guess, I would argue that we were probably the only tourists on planet Earth to see mountain gorillas in their natural habitat on that day. I guess, yeah. Like I said, I can't prove it, but I, I that's what I believe. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty darn sure. <laughs> yeah, and that's a magnificent sight in its own right. You know, those uh, mountain gorillas are, are truly incredible. Um, and yeah, I think those three countries you mentioned are the, are the best ones uh, where you can actually see them as well. Absolutely. Okay, so Somalia's got to be on the list. Yes, that's, uh, that is indeed correct. Uh, but you'd be surprised uh, how many people visit Somalia. Uh, and then I'm not talking about the southern parts, uh, including Mogadishu, where you see almost no visitors. But since you also have Somaliland, uh, Somaliland which is um, uh, it's a semi-independent country, or they want to be independent, they have their own... Um, government and, and such but it's not acknowledged by any other country in the world so it's still considered part of Somalia it's perfectly safe you have a police force that works no terrorism no pirates no nothing and you can fly in from a number of countries in Africa from Dubai and so on so that's why they're actually getting a few thousand tourists at all in, uh, into Somalia if, if you leave Somaliland in the north uh, there are almost no tourists at all then it's close to Yemen figures Okay, interesting. And what was your experience there? What was the place like? Well, I I was um, in Somaliland for several years ago, uh, hitchhiking in, in from Djibouti. This uh, this time I went uh, last year. I went into uh, Mogadishu, the capital, world famous after Black Hawk Down, which was actually filmed in Morocco, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> and you can't travel into Mogadishu without armed guards, then you will not be let into the country. So you, you need to uh, to um, travel in, well, you fly in, 
and um, in, in the airport, you will have your passport and everything controlled. And if you don't have someone meeting you there, uh, you can guarantee that you have armed guards, uh, then you'll not be allowed to, to enter into the city. So um, uh, my guide, he was driving. So where did you stay? Is it the, the Peace Hotel? Is that the one? Yeah, the Peace Hotel is, is one of the options. Um, then you have Jasera, which has been bombed quite a few times. And then you have uh, the Sahel International Hotel, where I stayed, uh, which was recently bombed in November, actually, and 57 people died. So um, that was considered the, the safest hotel. A friend of mine, she was visiting, um, she was visiting two days after. Uh, no, sorry, two days be before it was actually bombed. So it was, um, you know, she, was, she, she narrowly missed it. Uh, the, the explosion there. But Mogadishu, and, you know, I was, I was taken around by a local um, uh, tourism agency called uh, Visit Mogadishu. It's probably the, the least market-friendly name of a tourist agency in the world. Um, but they are run by locals, and they will take you safely around uh, Mogadishu or outside Mogadishu if you want to go there. Um, the fish market is, is really interesting to, to visit. And uh, it's, of course, it's rather sad to drive around in, in such a battered town with uh, so many damaged buildings from, from years and years of, of, of wars. And uh, what they told me is that, well, Somalia used to be one of the best countries in Africa. So, so one of, my, one of the, well, my guide, Umar, he told me, well, we used to be the lion of Africa. Now we are the hyena. And, you know, that, that tells you a lot, you know, how it comes from that. Uh, from something magnificent to something really, really um, unstable and sad in many ways. Wow, that would have been quite an experience. Hmm. Okay, let's think. I'm gonna try two more guesses, and uh, let's see. And see, and I don't even know about these ones because I don't know how much South Africans go there. But what about like Lesotho and Swaziland and those small countries that are inside of uh, South Africa? No, they get a fair amount of uh, visitors. Lesotho, it's, it's actually the country in the world with, um, where the lowest point in the country is the highest of any other. So it's the highest low point of any country in the world. <laughs> so you have, you have spectacular mountains in Lesotho, and it's so easy to get in there, no visa hassles or anything like that. So, so it, it's important. See, that's the thing. Is like I wasn't sure because they're so small. Like I was, I was kind of going that side opposed to the like the war-torn countries that we've discussed. So I, I wasn't sure. Okay, interesting. A good guess, for sure. Swaziland has, uh, well, that's now called, uh, what is it called? Eswani. They just changed their name. It's just changed, like, very recently. So, and the king uh, decided to, and, and it's one of, he, he, whatever he decides, it becomes law, more or less immediately. He's got 20, 30-something wives. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> Once again, I got one kid and one wife, Jesus, that's like already a lot of work. How how would someone would have nine kids, like the woman you talked about, or someone would have thirty wives? That's just beyond me. Yeah, well, I, I'm not going to comment on that. I don't have any wives or any kids, so um, <laughs> I, I can't really add much light, much much light to that. <laughs> All right, so give me give me one more country in Africa we'll chit chat about, and then we'll leave the rest of them to people to buy the book and, and learn more about uh, your experiences? Well, I can mention, um, well, we, we talked about that earlier, actually. The newest country in the world uh, is, is on the list. South Sudan uh, is there, 2,200 uh, visitors a year. 
again, it's a little bit similar to Yemen in terms of it's, it's a civil war raging on there, uh, lots of poverty and vast amounts of people. Uh, some people say as many as one third of the population have, um, have you know, they've, dis- well, they've uh, escaped from the country and are, are now refugees in, in Uganda and elsewhere. So it's, it's a sad story in, in South Sudan. Uh, it's a beautiful country, vast amounts of, of wildlife. And you still have, of course, a lot of people there are optimistic. I met with one reporter from Al Jazeera, uh, let's say the Arabic CNN, if you like. And um, yeah, and, and I asked her, you know, very, very clever uh, lady, Hiba Morgan is her name. And uh, I asked her, so why are you still here? Well, someone has to tell these stories. You know, we can't all just leave the sinking ship. Or if we leave, there, it will for sure be a sinking ship. So, you know, she, she's taking some responsibility there and just um, um, and she's decided to stay put in, uh, in South Sudan, in the capital, Juba, uh, there. So, Gunnar, any plans for new travel world records for you? I, I'm looking at your accolades here. This is incredible. Around the world, every single country in the world, twice you visited, what was it, 19 countries in 24 hours. You know, we didn't even have a chance to touch on this. Um, any plans for continuing your adventures and and um, creating new records? Well, this is um, it's it's very exciting to do these kind of things. It doesn't really have much to do about traveling, uh, to be honest, because when you travel, you know, when I travel, I want to meet people, I want to see sights, I want to taste foods, and all the rest of it. When you try to set a world record, uh, you can't, you don't have time for any of that. So, you know, I tend to say that in in love, war and world records, everything is allowed, uh, which includes to visit a country for two minutes just to step foot on it and and count it for the world record. So I I don't say travel world records. I I typically say logistical world records because it's all about speed and it's not about travel, really. Uh, But at the same time, it it gives you such an adrenaline boost just knowing that you're doing something that no one has done before. I've done this, all of well, most of these I've done with, with good friends. Uh, so it turns into the ultimate boys trip, if you like, um, to visit uh, 19 countries in a day. And of course, you celebrate afterwards. Um, but yeah, I don't have any immediate plans to do that um, or for another one, although I'm sure I'll come up with uh, other wild ideas. And of course, this costs some money. And right now, I'm, I'm focusing on, on getting my book out in, in April. And um, after I've done that, I'm sure I'm going to be uh, <laughs> easily convinced into doing some some more crazy stuff. Well, when you do, you let me know and we'll get you back on the show. And we'll talk about that as well, because I think you and I, Gunnar, we could speak all day about travel and chit chat about all these interesting things. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, you know, travel uh, makes you people unite. And I think uh, so many more people should um throw away all their excuses and and follow uh, this giant sports giants motto just do it you know come on don't find excuses for yourself go travel <laughs> absolutely famous word famous words to to end this amazing episode on gunner if my listeners want to learn more about what you do if they want to pick up a copy of the book when it comes out um where can we send them well, the best place to get info on this is uh, my website, garforce.com, or follow me on Instagram. Uh, my name there is Garforce, just my last name, or on Twitter. Just spell it for us there. Yeah, Garforce is G A R 
F-O-R-S. So it's um, Garforce, G-I-R-F-O-R-S. Um, and that's a Norwegian stroke Swedish name <laughs> for those that are interested in that. <laughs> Excellent. And I'll make sure that I link to these in the show notes under Gunner's episode at expatmoneyshow.com. Gunnar, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I really appreciate your time, and this was a really fun episode for me. Well, um, likewise, I enjoyed it. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks a lot for having me. All right. Take care. Cheers. Included with my brand new book, Expat Secrets, is heaps of fantastic bonus material. I spent a lot of time compiling special reports, extra services, hard-to-find resources, and everything I could think of that would help complement the book and still stay timely and relevant to using the offshore markets. To access the special bonuses, you must buy the book and follow the links I talk about in each chapter. Here are a couple of the special reports I have written that will go with the bonus section. Offshore Gold. How to invest safely in the offshore gold markets with 100% ironclad protection. A stash for spies and what to keep in your digital bug out bag. Electric vehicle metals, the next big commodities to boom. Medical tourism in Asia, why all the smart people are going abroad for their medical procedures. There is also access to a secret unpublished interview on offshore incorporation that explains exactly how it all works and who it's for. Plus, I even gave you access to my personal Rolodex where you get access to my contacts in the offshore space. I've spent a lifetime building up my network In it, I have trustworthy lawyers and CPAs who work in the offshore space, international real estate developers, private bankers, ambassadors and dignitaries, and foreign gold vault operators. If you need help in the offshore and expat market, chances are I know someone that will be able to assist you. So, to get access to all of these bonus materials, just pick up a copy of my brand new book, Expat Secrets, on Amazon today. The bonuses are yours and waiting for you with your copy of Expat Secrets. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region.
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.